Today's scripture reading is uh, from the book of Apostle John, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in, in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to Jews, so now I also said to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You have loved for one another. This is the word of God. Uh, good afternoon, New Hope. Um, it feels weird switching spots with Rob. I feel like I'm one step toward normalcy by being in the building and preaching. I wish you guys were in the pews, but for now, um, this medium will have to do. Uh, please turn your copy to uh, please turn your copy of the scripture to John 13. Our text today looks at giving the Christian a proper understanding and a foundation and motivation for loving others. As Chai um, just read, verse 31 marks a turning point in the Gospel of John. Previously in chapter 13, Jesus has taken his disciples to the upper room and he has shared the Passover meal with them. He has washed their feet and he has told them that one of them would betray him. What follows between chapter uh, 13, verse 31, to chapter 17 is what is known as the upper room discourse. Here, Jesus is giving the disciples final instructions, teachings, and commands just hours before he will be led to the cross. The dominant theme of this section is Christ preparing his disciples for his departure. The focus of our today's sermon is Jesus's initial command to the disciples to love one another. And in understanding the command given by Jesus to his followers, we want to answer the question, how do we as disciples of Christ today rightly obey and honor this command? The thrust of our message this afternoon is answering, how is the new command new? How, it is, how is it obeyed in the Christian life? And the answer that I want to convince you of from our text this afternoon is, it is by seeing God glorified through Jesus Christ in the gospel. But if I'm going to be able to do that, let me pray and ask God for help, because nothing of what I have planned to say today will be of any use if God does not bless it. New Hope, let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for your word, where we are going to see your glory today. I pray that we would see your glory today in this passage. Lord, and I pray that you would help us as a church, as a community of faith, love one another as Christ has commanded us to. Lord, would you be with me now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin by first looking at verse 31, the beginning part of it. It says, when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said... Now, stopping there, I want you to notice that this discourse is already aimed at believers and true disciples of Jesus Christ. It is only after Judas leaves that Jesus then turns to his disciples, the remaining 11, to unpack what they need to know about him going to the cross. 
This already tells us something unique about the command that he is going to give in verse 34 and 35. And it is this. It is that this command cannot be obeyed or observed by the unbeliever. I'm not sure if this is still as common now, but I remember when I was growing up, I would often hear about people offering some kind of lip service to Jesus. They would say things that he's like an outstanding moral teacher. He is one who has sage wisdom, and he can give good and helpful advice for anybody wanting to live a moral, positive way of living. This verse is probably one that comes to many people's minds, but taken out of context, People think that to live an upright and a moral life before others and before God is that we just need to love each other. In the words of Jackie DeShannon, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. But how are we to love? Why do we love? And what does loving each other mean according to this passage? These questions are often answered by a total subjective opinion or interpretation of the individual. But we as Christians do not seek to fill in what the meaning of the word love is here. We understand that the authors of Scripture had some intention. They were led by the Holy Spirit and had in mind specific answers or ways to think about how we are to love. Jesus' teaching and command here is not fortune cookie, wisdom. They are the words of God to the people of God. And the command has an objective interpretation given by God that we should seek and desire to want to understand. And so, this command, I believe, is exclusive in its scope in who can obey it, and it doesn't seem as if it is the Judases of the world. In order to understand the command, we must look at how Jesus prefaces it. With Judas's departure, Jesus immediately says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Something about Judas leaving triggers this shift for Jesus. Why does Jesus say now? I'll remind you earlier in the chapter, in verse 1, John makes the comment that Jesus states that, or he reminds his followers that his hour has come. Before that, in the book of John, Jesus is always telling them his hour has not yet come, or the hour is not yet here. But now the hour is here, and with Judas's betrayal, Judas's leaving into the darkness of the Jerusalem night, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Jesus sees this moment as the moment of his glory shining most brightly for his disciples to see. The title Jesus uses here is Son of Man. That is not coincidental. It was one of Jesus' favorite for himself. But the idea in the Old Testament was that the Son of Man was one who would come in glory, in power, and authority. And that is juxtaposed to the way that the Synoptic Gospels present the Son of Man, who is one who is suffering. And so John is dramatically bringing together in this charged moment, or should I say Jesus is, where the greatest moment of God's displayed glory comes through what appears to be the greatest moment of his shame. It is the final time that Jesus will use this title in the Gospel of John. 
And so a shift has occurred because the very reason Jesus had come to earth, the ultimate mission of his life, is sealed and set in motion because of what he says back in verse 27. He does not say to Judas, you don't have to do this. Brother, there is another way. Instead, he looks at Judas and he will say to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. As Judas leaves and departs into the night, Christ is already experiencing the events of his passion. And he has committed himself already to the providential will of his Father to go to the cross. Jesus is going to become the conduit to show the radical nature of God's love for sinners. Jesus knows what, it is, what is about to take place, and he presses into it. He moves toward it strategically. The greatest act of God's love is about to be manifested in him in what appears to be the greatest moment of shame. And so the glory of Christ seen in the gospel from the betrayal to the resurrection is what magnifies his Father in heaven. And this is why Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. But verse 32 also reveals that this glorification that Christ is speaking about between the Father and the Son works in the other direction as well. It's not just to be thought of in terms of Jesus laying down his life voluntarily as the means by which God is glorified, but the glory of God, the Father and the Son, is so intertwined, it is so closely connected that it is equal to say, and with as much force, that God the Father is most glorious, for he is the one who sends and gives up his Son. And the Son will be glorified in him. Christ is glorious because he lays down his life, and that glorifies the Father. The Father is glorious for sending his Son, and will glorify the Son in himself. This reality will become important in our understanding on the nature of, of love as Jesus will communicate it shortly in verse 34. In fact, this idea becomes the foundation for everything that is going to be said in the discourse up into chapter 17. The understanding and seeing the glory of Christ in his passion is the thing that his disciples need to see in order to believe in him and to follow him. Without seeing the glory of God in Jesus through the gospel, there can be no belief and therefore there can be no real obedience. You cannot obey anything that Christ commands if you do not see the glory of God manifested in Jesus Christ. This is undoubtedly one of the main themes that we have been looking at in the book of John as he's been developing it throughout his gospel. He wants his reader to believe. He wants the reader to see the glory of Christ. And that's why he writes in chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And John, from that point, as he is authoring his gospel, says, Now let me show you this glory. Let me tell you about this glory. 
Jesus tells his disciples that the moment that they are in right now, they are seeing God's glory most brightly because of what will take place moments from now. John is recording this in his gospel. He's recording Jesus' departing words to him. And as he's recalling, he's remembering, he said, now the Son of Man is glorified. He is remembering what he was witnessing, and he is realizing, I am sure, I am standing in the presence of God himself. And so Jesus goes on to tell them, verse 33, little children, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I want to focus on the word that he uses there, little children. One must wonder what kind of effect that term had on John as he was hearing his Savior say it. Because the word is not found in any other place in the New Testament with one exception in Galatians 4. But it is used again seven times in only one other place. Can you guess? The book of 1 John. Little children marks the endearing, affectionate heart of Jesus for his disciples in this moment as he views them as little still in their grasp of all that is going to unfold. They have no idea of the extravagant love that will take place for them in just a few hours. They they were amazed and baffled, and we are amazed and baffled by the feet washing of Jesus. But even that will seem marginal when compared to the awe and the glory and the scandal of Jesus, the Son of God, dying to cleanse unworthy sinners in order to bring them into fellowship with him. So he wants to prepare these little ones for the realities of this departure and what it will mean for them as his followers. He tells them, I am only with you a little while longer. Judas is on his way to betray me to the authorities. My hour has finally come. And when you seek me, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I wonder how heartbreaking and how emotional that must have been for the disciples. Here are the now 11 who have followed Jesus every step for the last three years, they have lodged with him. They have eaten and ate uh, meals with him. They have learned under him. They have gone through and have seen some of the most amazing things. And now at this moment of glorification, he's telling them, you cannot go where I'm going. You cannot follow me there. To Peter's disbelief and dismay, he asks, why God? In verse 37, why can't I follow you? He believes that he is willing to lay down his life in this moment. Lord, I will follow you anywhere. Not realizing the only life that will be laid down this night is his Savior's. In order for the disciples to follow Christ truly, in order for us to truly obey God in the spirit and a manner worthy of his calling, Christ must first do what we cannot He must tread the path and make a way. He must show us what love truly is. Because if we do not truly understand the love of God, we cannot obey the commands of God. 
If Jesus does not secure for us the love of God, we cannot share in the love of God. If Christ does not leave them now to go ahead of them, then they will never really able, be able to follow him. And so Christ has to go before us in order to win a salvation, to purchase a redemption that was unattainable under the old covenant, Christ and only Christ can obtain for the people of God the ministry of the Spirit that will transform and enable us to relate to our Heavenly Father as authentic worshipers who do so in spirit and in truth. Without the realities of the gospel won for us that night in Jesus, there is no such thing as following God. And so Jesus must prepare his disciples because the change is coming and they will need to recall all that Jesus has spoken to them because after his death and resurrection, Jesus says in verse 36, oh, you will be able to follow. So why mention all of this? Jesus knows the answer to how the disciples are going to be able to obey his commands and honor the command to love one another. It only comes by seeing him glorified as God through the gospel. No betrayal, no trial. No trial, no cross. No cross, no resurrection. No resurrection, no newness of life. No hope of eternity. No chance at reconciliation with God. Seeing God glorified in Christ through the gospel is paramount to living as a follower of Christ. If, if we lose sight of Jesus, we move toward a gospel of works. If we move toward a gospel of works, we relate to God through our performance and not his love. We lose focus on his love, and then our efforts to love are in vain. And this is why Jesus has to tell them, and he tells them, now the Son of Man is glorified. Now you must be ready for my departure. Now you must understand who I am and what I am going to do for you. I'm not sure how many of you today are joining us as guests, and maybe you're not familiar with the things of God, or if you're someone who just doesn't believe they have seen the glory of God yet in Jesus Christ. I want to be honest and clear with you. You don't make this connection. Forget about obeying the commands of Scripture. You are the Judas in the story. You are in darkness. You are like the Jews who will seek after him, but not find him. And so you need to first see your need of a suffering, glorified Savior who is going to experience a betrayal, abandonment, slander, beatings, shame, lashes, nails driven into his hands and feet, only to be propped up like a criminal for all to mock and see. But beyond that, that is nothing compared to his experience of God's holy wrath for the sins of men that he will bear upon himself on that tree. But not only that, this exchange of our sin for his righteousness is what allows us to be brought into union with him and the Father. Only by Jesus Christ's death can we know the deep and abiding love of God Almighty. And the good news, friend, is this Savior offers this redemption freely 
He offers it freely to anyone who turns to him, repents of their sins, and cries out, Lord, I need your love. I need to be washed. And he is kind and he is merciful and he is just to do it. Have you seen the glory of Christ in the gospel? If you have not, I ask you to turn and to consider this Savior. Consider Jesus Christ before you consider anything else that I say to you today. To get to the place to obey a single command of God, you must first understand and see the glory and the love of God for you in Jesus Christ through the gospel, the good news of his life, his death, and his resurrection for you. You must be born again. We can't obey something that we don't understand that we have not experienced. We can't love unless we understand that he first loved us. So why spend so much time emphasizing this connection? I fear that when we say gospel-centered love, when we say gospel-centered anything, we have a a mind or an eye toward Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection, but we believe that it's our goal from that point to kind of figure out or fill in the blanks on how to do it. How do we be gospel-centered? Sometimes we just think that Jesus is an amendment to the end of the stuff that we do. Well, I'm going to go out. I'm going to feed people who are in need. And you tag the gospel at the end of it. He's an amendment to the end of everything that we do. That's, that's not what it means to be gospel-centered. In the words of John Piper, I believe gospel-centered love is not just patterned love Like Jesus, it is powered on the love of Jesus. The power and the means by which we are able to obey comes from drawing from the union that we have because he so loved us and saved us. Because he perfectly loved and is loving his Father in heaven. And those benefits are transferred to us when they are won for us at the cross and we believe and we put our faith in him who is God glorified. And so we just don't aim to understand these things and then try to do our best from our strength and our thinking and our experiences. We obey and live by the strength that only he can supply. So how does this relate to the command itself? Jesus in verse 34 says, a new command I give to you, love one another. Anybody who knows a little bit about Bible should scratch their heads because that's not a new command or doesn't appear to be on the surface. God gave that command in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, what is new here? The commandment is new Because it is contingent on us knowing what God has done to love us. Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. If you don't know how Jesus has loved you, then there's no way for you to properly obey the command. The command does not just reflect a new standard of love that Christ left for us in his example, such as feet washing. But the command is new because it so perfectly captures the relationship and the dynamic of obedience between the Father and the Son. What Jesus has done is he has purchased for us 
the ability to have a unified love with God that mirrors the love between Christ and the Father. Which means we are not obeying the command from a sense of compulsion. We're not obeying the command out of fear that if we fail God in some way, He is not pleased or that He will stop loving us. It is that we are so secure in the love of God, won for us by Jesus, and we are so abiding in Christ now that we obey from the overflow of what Christ has done for us. And so our obedience is joyful. It is voluntary, just like Christ in his obedience to his Father. The command is new because the way in which the command is obeyed is new. Before Christ, the command would have been obeyed as an attempt to lay claim to a righteousness that came from the law. It is an attempt to garner favor from God. And so the love was always going to be self-focused in nature. The motive was always going to be ulterior. I need to love because if I don't love, God is going to reject me. I don't get right with God. But because of the law of Christ and the new covenant Jesus has inaugurated, the commandment is new because righteousness apart from the law has been won for us in Jesus. And we no longer have a fear of condemnation. We no longer love by the letter of the law. We love now by the spirit of Christ. John writes it like this in 1 John 1.7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. Interesting choice of words. But an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him, Jesus Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The gospel of Jesus Christ has functionally changed the way we obey the commands of God. Now, maybe I have convinced you, maybe I need to be more clear, but if you're on the same page with me, wonderful. But for some, this is outright offensive. This is offensive because it removes any sense of merit or righteousness that can be won apart from Christ. It is only through belief and trust in his gospel. That is only through the belief and trust in his gospel. Which means people cannot point to very genuinely moral and upright things that they have done throughout their life and say, Lord, Lord, I did exactly what you said. I followed the command to love others. But there will be many who will stand before God on the day of judgment and realize that their external obedience to that command, love others, was only patterned after an imitation of, Jesus, of a Jesus of their own making. The reality is there is no good apart from faith in Jesus as revealed here in the scriptures. And there is nothing we can do that is pleasing to God unless we are united to his son by faith. John, a chapter and a half later, writes this in John 15, 5. This is Jesus talking. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You're not abiding in God's love. If you don't believe in the work of Jesus and are abiding in him, 
If you're not resting on the cross that gives you the new birth, new mind, new heart, new eyes, ears, hands, lips, and feet to do the very things Christ is calling us to here, if you are not in Christ the vine, then you cannot then be said to be obeying the command. Apart from me, you can do nothing of spiritual value. Because if you don't have Christ, you don't have the Father. If you don't have the Father, you don't know or you have the love of God. This is Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospel of John. And I've spent so much of our time attempting to convince you that loving one another is only obeyed when we understand and see the glory of God in Christ through the Gospel because that's what I believe Jesus is saying here. But I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at the actual command. What are the qualities of God's love for us that are expressed here that we might then apply it to our lives? I want to demonstrate with you from the surrounding context of John 13 that the gospel-centered love Christ and John have in mind has at least five defining qualities. But before I list them to you, I do want to make something very clear. That is, as I share these qualities with you, New Hope, I believe that it is appropriate for me to first encourage our church as a whole in all of the ways in which these qualities are being lived out in our body. As I provide these thoughtful um, examples and explanations to what I'm about to tell you, I want you to know that as a church, I have observed, I have been encouraged by, I have learned from, and I have been the recipient of these expressions of gospel-centered love. And so I want to thank you as a church for loving Jesus and obeying the command. Please know that as I speak about these attributes now, I speak as Paul encouraged the Thessalonian church, as he said, just as you are doing, do so more and more. Just as you are doing, do so more and more. Gospel-centered love is first practical. Gospel-centered love is practical. In many ways, while what Jesus did for the disciples was an extravagant, by the washing of their feet as a sign of what he would do to cleanse their souls, on the surface, the act is actually very practical. Loving each other should be as simple as this. Here the disciples' feet are crusty, they're dirty, and they are in need of a good clean to remove the filth and the odor. Jesus' loving act is profoundly simple. We can easily find these practical ways to demonstrate love for one another by just sharing in one another's burdens and asking necessary questions. How can I meet your needs? What needs do you see in the body of our church? What ministries are in need of your help? What free time can you give in service to another? What material blessings might you have that another brother and sister doesn't and they might benefit from? We see Jesus loving his disciples in such a way that is pregnant with gospel meaning, but on the outside, it is very practical. And so we should endeavor to look for and not overlook the very ordinary and simple things to love each other. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's the gospel. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's a big ask. But he says, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need 
yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? So he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Number two, gospel-centered love is relational. Without wanting to be extremely obvious here, the quality of gospel-centered love is that it is by nature relational. The command is for those who share in faith and belief in Jesus that they would know each other and share, um, sorry, they would know one another in the same way Christ knew and loved his disciples. That the experience of love for one another would deepen over time as we get to know each other and thoughtful connections would begin to take place leading to more forms of love and acts of charity. This means as we seek to love one another, we must be relational with one another. God did not send a disembodied spirit to lead us to the knowledge of God and his love. Christ came. He came in the flesh to walk and dwell among us. The love of God was intentional in seeking the good of others. And we ought to likewise be intentional with forming and building relationships within our church in order to love each other well. This love seeks to build up the community of faith, and that is why things like church membership is not just a way for us to keep role and who's in and who's out, although that is very important, but it is also a reflection of wanting to faithfully keep the command to love one another. Third, gospel-centered love is sacrificial. Later in the discourse in chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, Jesus repeats the command. He says, this is my commandment, almost verbatim here, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Gospel-centered love is intrinsically sacrificial. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. A distinct feature of this kind of love is that it does not ask in return. It is not entitled. It is not manipulative. It doesn't coerce. It is freely and gladly given. The spirit of Christ in our own demonstrations of love can never be a type of huffing and, and puffing and being grumpy in order to show so-and-so that they would acknowledge what that we are doing for them. Who, who is it that is helping you and seeks to kind of garner attention and accolades and praise and to remind that person again and again how much I loved you? sacrifices quietly. It is humble and remembers the obedience of Christ, as Christ humbly obeyed the Father. He who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, sacrificially loved us. He freely gave up his own life to love and redeem his friends. Bible says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Love sacrificially and know that your reward is knowing that you have pleased your Father in heaven by emulating his Son. Fourth, gospel-centered love is missional. Gospel-centered love is missional. Verse 35 says, by this, this kind of loving one another, 
All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I find that extremely interesting. You might think that in order to attract people to Christ, if Jesus would have said something about in this moment, loving others. And we would then take that and find seeker-sensitive ways to get people to come to church. But rather, he instead says, if you want people to know that you are my disciples and reflect on something about the love of God for them, you need to love one another. Loving one another well is in fact a demonstration of a missional mindset. Jonathan Lehman, in his book, The Surprising Offense of God's Love, writes this on John 13, 35. The church's internal work of holiness and love amongst its members is inextricably tied to its outward work of witness. We must display Christ in our corporate life in order to display Christ in our individual lives. The church is Jesus' evangelism plan because it alone displays the wisdom of God. And here's the kicker. Only an all-wise God could take a group of people who were once at war with him and with one another and convert them into an assembly of love. Remember, Jesus is telling his disciples, I am not going to be around very soon. I am going to go to the cross. I will resurrect and be taken up into heaven in order to send you the Holy Spirit. The new way in which the disciples will associate themselves together as followers of Jesus is no longer going to be the way that they used to do it, by following Jesus physically around. The way that they will be able to identify each other and demonstrate to others that they are followers of Christ is in the way in which they love one another. The conclusion being, we need to love each other all the more radically so that others might see and at very least know who we have identified ourselves with, and better yet, that we would pray perhaps that they would see that love and the uniqueness of Christian fellowship, and then God would draw them in. Fifth and lastly, gospel-centered love is truthful. It is truthful. I think this quality of gospel-centered love is often the most difficult to obey, because it clashes the most with our own cultural ideas of love that have kind of seeped into the church. Love, as the world understands it, is tied to the idea of tolerance. If you want to love someone, we should just let them do what it is they want to do. To suggest or to say something that would make the other person feel negative or feel bad, or to make them um, go as far to believe that what they're doing is wrong, that If you were to do that to somebody, it is seen in our culture as unloving. Who are you to tell me? And so I think the idea or the attention in times is that we want to be gentle and patient and forbearing when it comes to the errors or the sins that we see in other Christians. But that can move to a very dangerous extreme when we say nothing. Or that causes the person to maybe then adopt a mindset that their sin or their inconsistent living is just okay. I think the real reason we do not want to press people on their inconsistent Christian living and call them out in love is not because we want to be patient and forbearing. It is because there's a fear of man. But Jesus had no problem saying the hard things in love to the people when they did not want to hear it. Jesus always spoke the truth in love. It's not 
making the disciples feel good when he's saying, I'm not going to be with you and you can't come with me. Jesus does not hold back when Peter says a very seemingly God-honoring thing in verse 37, Lord, I would die for you. You would think Jesus would say, thanks, Peter. Like, that's so, wow, it's so encouraging. He goes, no, you were going to deny me three times. You're not going to die for me. You were going to deny me. Jesus does not beat around the bush when he says, one of you will betray me. In fact, it's the one, after I've dipped this bread and I give it to them, that's the guy who's going to betray me. The brother of Jesus, James, reminds us that whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. That same exact language is used by Peter in his letter. Above all, he says, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. We must not buy into the notion that speaking hard truths to our brothers or sisters in Christ is unloving. We must believe that speaking truth in love is always the harder thing to do. It is difficult. But it is more loving than to neglect or say nothing for fear of upsetting or hurting someone's feelings. We cannot let the ideologies and the worldviews from outside the church to shape our understanding of love in the church. Otherwise, we deny the power of God's reconciling work to protect and guard the church from division. We must be truthful and honest with one another so that by loving one another well, we grow in holiness and thus cover a multitude of sins. So those are what I believe from the surrounding context of John 13 are some of the demonstrated qualities of what and how we can love one another. And so my final exhortation to you, New Hope, is this. I want to say that the command here though radically changed in how it is obeyed, is still nonetheless a non-negotiable command. It is a non-negotiable command. Christians who have been transformed by the radical and extravagant love of Christ demonstrated for us in the gospel, we are not cherry pickers when it comes to the commands that we want to obey. This is how you will know, they will know, or all will know, you are my disciples. If you love one another, it is the mark of a Christian. It is the fruit of faith when we pursue loving others. 1 John chapter 5, 1 through 4 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Amen. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, faith in Jesus Christ. New Hope, I encourage you to consider how you might obey this command today today. Because if you've understood it, if you've processed it, and you say, I know it, then we must obey it. The disciple of Christ is zealous and passionate to know and to see and to pursue the glory of their God. And so my appeal to you is that you would not just let this message sit on the shelf of your mind, but that you would consider how to obey the command today. And so I've asked you to examine yourself throughout the sermon why do you love? Why do you love? 
And I hope the only appropriate answer that you can arrive at, arrive at is that he first loved me. You know, in studying for this text, I was reminded of the way Jenny and I would speak to one another when we first started dating. As very, very insecure adults, I'm still insecure, we would ask each other, why do you like me? Why do you love me out of everybody else? And then we would shower one another with affirmations and praise and saying how great so-and-so is. And you know what? Jenny has stayed the same. I have only gotten worse. But what happens when Jenny is no longer those things that I said I loved her for? What happens when I'm no longer the things that she said of me? If love is built on a moving standard, if love is built on something that can change overnight, we can never be secure in it. I realize how wrong my responses tend to be because so many of them are built on something that can change in either me or her that we have no control over. And so I have concluded, I don't want to love Jenny. I don't want to love my kids. I don't want to love my church because that's what I'm just expected to do or because they are so great or because they are worthy or because I'm biologically wired to want to love my own flesh and blood and tribe. This is not the love of God. The love of God is that he sent his only son into the world to die for unworthy, broken sinners who wanted nothing to do with him. Christ loved us when we were most unlovable. Christ loved us not on the changing standard of men, but on the unsearchable, solid ground of God. In the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, He loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. I want to love others because it says something about the glory of my Savior who died to show love and mercy to me. I want to love my friends and family in such a way that their experience of my love for them is built on the immovable standard of love offered by God. I want to love because Christ loved me. Lord, would you help us love as you love Help us to keep your commands, for they are not burdensome. We cannot, apart from your grace, do these things. Help us to see your glory, the glory of your Son in the gospel, so that we would be motivated in our love for each other. Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. Your word says, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.